You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You are listening to Metamorphosis Podcast, where we interview various physicians across BC about their specialties with the aim of helping undifferentiated medical students navigate their careers. My name is Eric Jung, and I will be your host today. My name is Tina Liu. I will be your co-host for another special quarantine edition of Metamorphosis. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Michael Nimmo, a former psychology major and corporate lawyer, as well as UBC Medicine graduate, who's currently practicing as a general pathologist at Vancouver General Hospital. Welcome, and thank you for joining us virtually on Metamorphosis today, Dr. Nimmo. I'd like to start us off with uh, having you first tell us a bit about yourself and uh, yeah, what you do. Well, so I'm Mike Nimmo and I'm a general pathologist, as you've described, working at Vancouver General Hospital. Um, I went through the residency training here at UBC and then I started working at UBC Hospital, which was part of BGH at the time and now it's part of uh, the Vancouver Acute System. Um, and I've been at Vancouver General Hospital for the several, past several set, six or eight years, I guess it is. Um, and I work as a pathologist concentrating in the areas of surgical pathology and autoimmune testing. You know, surgical pathology is the field of taking specimens, either biopsies or surgical resection specimens, and examining them histologically and providing diagnoses. And I was attracted to pathology because of the nature of the work. I think it's a very interesting and rewarding field. And autoimmune testing is the field of looking at the serologic results of patients with autoimmune diseases, uh, patients with lupus, autoimmune hepatitis, various other autoimmune conditions. And we analyze their blood and help to subclassify the diseases, provide prognostic information, various other helpful parameters to determine how the patient is is uh, performing. And in my experience, being a pathologist is very rewarding because I deal with other professionals. So in, in essence, I am the doctor to the doctors. We interact with general surgeons, thoracic surgeons, uh, gynecologists, uh, internal medicine, uh, all of the specialties, family physicians, we interact with them, and it's very rewarding because we're able to provide useful information that help guide the therapy of their patients. Yeah, I think that's important that you highlight that because I think a big stereotype out there of pathologists is that they're very antisocial, hiding out in the basement. But from my experience shadowing pathology and exactly what you're saying now, you actually have a ton of interaction with your colleagues within the specialty and with, um, within other specialties as well. I think you're right, Tina. From my perspective, um, I think that is a stereotype that is applied to pathologists. I can tell you that I'm not in the basement. I'm actually in the first floor of Jim Patterson Pavilion North, which is right above emergency. Um, many of my colleagues have windowed offices. And again, the interactions, people think that uh, we are socially inept or awkward. And I think it's far from the truth. We don't require that, uh, you know, interactions with patients. We are always interacting with each other. There are approximately 20 surgical pathologists here at Vancouver General Hospital. In addition, there's neuropathologists, hematopathologists, etc. And we interact on a daily basis. It's one of the nice things about pathology is we're able to review cases 
amongst each other. Uh, it's very easy to pick up a glass slide and walk down the hallway and say, what do you think of this? Um, and the other, if, if you look at pathologists as a group, they're always smiling. Uh, and that's because we have a lot of control of our daily activities. It's not like we have a waiting room full of patients. You can't say to a waiting room full of patients, I'm just going to go watch my son's hockey game and come back, you know, in an hour's time because the patients would be upset. Whereas you could come in early and look at your glass slides early, create time in the day that you could go and do other activities. And, you know, we're always available either by pager or by phone and provided you have, uh, you know, you, they can contact you, we have a certain amount of flexibility with being able to attend other events or participate in other activities, especially, for example, teaching. And that's something I really enjoy. And pathology really does afford me the opportunity to do a lot of teaching. I think that's really important that you mentioned that, that the culture of pathology is so different from what one might expect. Um, I shadowed quite a bit uh, in second year, and I just thought pathologists and pediatricians were the nicest people I'd ever met in medicine. How much do you think is is that the like you know the flexibility you're afforded uh, through the nature of your specialty, and having fewer of the stressors that other specialists might experience, or is that just something that is selected for when you're picking residents? Um, I think the field of pathology does afford you more time in the sense that you don't have people on the other side of the desk or the examining room asking you questions immediately. Um, I'm a salaried physician here at Vancouver General Hospital. As pathologists, the main types of arrangements for payment are either as an employee or a service contract. Uh, we're not so much fee for service. Consequently, there's not that constant demand to be pushing patients through or the, the constraints of a, a backed up waiting room because of the demand. We, we have more control over our time. In addition, I think, although pathology can be very stressful, you know, the work we do, if I make a wrong diagnosis, it could lead to the amputation of a limb that was not necessary or, you know, implementation of therapy that was harmful to the patient or the withholding of, of uh, you know, treatment for the patient that is necessary. And the most stressful area for us, if you like, or the highest acuity is in the frozen section room. And in frozen sections, I, I believe you've done general surgery rotations, and in frozen sections, the surgeon will send us a piece of tissue or an organ and ask us for a diagnosis that we have to provide within 20 minutes. And that will guide their surgery. So, for example, you could have an ovarian mass in a woman and they want to know, is it a benign or malignant? And if it's malignant, what kind of malignancy is it? Because different therapies are implemented and they may want to, if it's a high-grade serous carcinoma, leave an intraperitoneal shunt in place so they can do intraperitoneal chemotherapy. So I think it's, it is not without stress. I think the situations where you experience that kind of high acuity are relatively limited. And even then you do have the concept, you do have backup. So during regular working hours, if I have a difficult gynecologic malignancy or surgical, you know, they're doing a Whipple procedure. It's not that I'm on my own. 
I do have access to people with subspecialty training in hepatobiliary pathology or um, gynecopathology subspecialty training. And I can take the slides to them. You know, slides are eminently portable. It's not like I have to tuck the patient under my arm and walk around. A glass slide, just for those of you that have never seen it, that's what a glass slide looks like. And it's very, very portable. So you can walk down the hallway and show it to someone. That was something I experienced, actually. Dr. Tony Ng, another pathologist, he allowed me to cut off a slice of this frozen ovary. Um, and it they had clear cell carcinoma, unfortunately. But um, I think one of the stereotypes or misconceptions is that all you do is look at slides, but there's actually a lot of dirty work, let's say, in receiving the sample, preparing it for analysis, and then getting it to the step where you're able to analyze it. That's true. And again... Um, so the work and the processing of specimens prior to us actually looking at them, there is a lot of work involved in that. And it's amusing sometimes to get residents or others, you know, dropping off a specimen and saying, so will the result be available in 20 minutes? Uh, because they're used to blood tests. And that's just not possible in anatomic pathology because it has to go through the various stages of processing, including fixation, etc. We actually, as pathologists, are not involved to a great extent in that. Uh, the small biopsies are received, you know, if you have a colonoscopy, radiologically guided biopsy of prostate, et cetera, we receive those in the lab. They are accessioned and then they are distributed to the technologist who will then put them into cassettes. They go into the machine overnight and then would be available next day for cutting. And we don't do cutting of slides. so. You know, individuals who have been in laboratories and think that that's the kind of work we do, no, that's not true. Where the pathologist is involved is obviously once the slide is prepared, looking down the slide or down the microscope and assessing the slide and providing a diagnosis. But we also are involved in the more complicated cases where we have to analyze the specimen and determine what sections are appropriate in the situation of frozen section diagnoses where we are the first people to deal with the specimen and ensure that we sample representative tissue, freeze it, render a diagnosis. And in situations where perhaps the specimen that came out originally, um, there's something unusual in the findings, we would go back to the specimen, re-examine it. So, you know, biopsy specimens we're not really involved in until we actually look at them under the microscope. Large surgical specimens, which would include hysterectomies, uh, you know, cholecystectomies, uh, mastectomies, etc., where you have a large organ, you have to determine what sections are appropriate. Sometimes the initial sections may not be representative, so you want to go back and get additional sections. But the majority of our work is reviewing the material that's provided to us and also discussing issues with clinicians, reviewing the material that's online, you know, the patient care information system to get additional information. One of the things we receive is it, it's very interesting. A, a surgeon will take, you know, one or two hours to remediate a specimen. And then the history we get is no history. Um, and it's interesting because it's hard to believe that, uh, you know, after spending all that time doing that procedure, that there's minimal information available to us. So it's always, we would go and check to see what the appropriate history is, uh, you know, and that's very important to guiding what we do. 
Yeah, I think the role of, of a pathologist is just paramount in deciding not only diagnoses, but treatment options. And that's a power that many other specialists don't necessarily have. You're determining somebody's treatment course. And like, as you said, uh, in between surgeries or during a surgery, that's happening live. How do you yep. find that switch between, you know, that high acuity, having to produce the results or, or an evaluation so quickly contrasted with the flexibility of the, the schedule when you're not doing a frozen section? Yeah, so luckily when we have one of our pathologists, and this would be true for every single pathology site, uh, whether it be at you know, whichever hospital is involved, then definitely there's someone that's dedicated and they would have to be on site and available during regular operating hours, which would be eight till five. So here at VGH, there's a dedicated pathologist doing surgical uh, frozen sections between eight and five. We have one dedicated for thoracic frozens as well. And there's a neuropathologist who would be doing the neuropathology frozens. Um, in essence, we don't, you know, we, we do go between the high acuity and the low acuity what we're finding now is more and more as pathology and medicine evolves, our ability to provide additional information on cases, for example, with new therapies that are coming available, there are various histochemical stains that we can do to determine whether or not a patient will respond to a particular therapy or to help subclassify tumors. And the advent of molecular pathology, there are gonna be tremendous changes, I think, in pathology that will make the pathologist even more crucial to helping determine what therapy is implemented. And I'm so wow. sorry, I totally derailed no, uh, the direction totally of fine. this. <laughs> I mean, this is part of the organic interview process. Sometimes we'll deviate like this, but we can always edit it. I think that was so much good content covering. I think Tina is in the process of revising all her CARMS applications. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah. think about it. <laughs> yeah. I actually really loved histology when we were doing it. Lots of questions. Oh, histology. Yeah. Good times. Okay, Dr. Nimmo. So to start us off, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background prior to medicine? So uh, are you wondering, you know, when I was a little baby boy, uh, born back in England, uh, I was actually born. <laughs> I'll keep it brief. I was born in England and our family moved to Vancouver Island when I was seven years old. Um, and then I grew up on the island in uh, Nanaimo. I uh, went to high school uh, on the island and then went to Queen's University. And I did a BA and a BSc honors. And then I finished the BSc honors and went to law school at the University of Western Ontario. Uh, that was a three-year program. Following my law degree, um, I was getting married at the time and we decided that we wanted to go to either Toronto or to Vancouver. Uh, we opted for Vancouver and at the time you had to choose if you were articling. So after you finish law school or while you're doing law school, similar to applying through CARMS for residency, you apply for articling positions and the situation in law is different from medicine because they're different jurisdictions. So Ontario is a separate jurisdiction from British Columbia. And there were separate matches at that time. So you had to commit to one or the other match. I wanted to get back to British Columbia because I enjoyed being on the coast. And my wife was fine with that so long as we were in a relatively large city. Um, I mat or matched, I guess would be the correct word, uh, to one of the law firms downtown Vancouver. Uh, 
uh, it was a corporate commercial firm. And so I worked, I articled in Vancouver. I then worked at that law firm for approximately two or three years. Um, and at that time, I just, I was doing mainly contract work, you know, asset purchase, share purchase deals, that sort of material. And I just decided that it was not what I saw myself doing for the rest of my life. Um, it was definitely very, very corporate minded, uh, a lot of logging, uh, asbestos companies, things like that. And I just felt that uh, it would be more appropriate. I luckily doing my undergraduate degree at Queens, I had all the prerequisites to get into medical school. Interesting enough, the one I didn't have was English. <laughs> and because I'm not sure if you're aware, but if you go to Ontario, English is not required in first year like it is here. And consequently, when you uh, when, when I wanted to apply to medical school, I had to start taking English as a night course. Um, I got a couple of months into it, and then we got busy at work, so I had to drop the course, and I was able to take it, uh, what they call the English equivalency test, which was quite funny because, of course, English is my native language. I was a trained lawyer, you know, reviewing documents, etc., and I had to sit a I think it was a two-hour exam, analyze some poetry about a caged tiger, and then write a paragraph or an, uh, two paragraphs, whatever, on the architecture of downtown Vancouver so that they could confirm that I was actually fluent in English. So that was funny. Did and you pass? Then, uh, luckily, I did. <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess that's why I got here. And the great thing about being a lawyer at the time was I was able to get my secretary to type up my application form. This was before the days of uh, computers, so it literally was a typed uh, application. And I applied and was granted interview, was offered a second and third interview, which was the method it was done back then, if I was successful on the English placement exam. And as you pointed out, yes, I was successful. Um, and then I got into medical school. And wow. from my perspective, uh, in, in my opinion, I think law is an excellent degree to have and it really did prepare me well law is a very very general type of uh, process where you learn to make arguments um, it's different from medicine in the sense that you, in medicine it's much more collegial you're working cooperative cooperatively to a goal whereas in law you're sort of arguing one point versus the other point um, I have to admit, when I first went into medical school, and on, I can remember distinctly in the first medical biochemistry exam, they specifically said, what enzyme catalyzes this reaction? And I was thinking, well, that's a silly question, because I can just look that up in a textbook, and it'll take me a second. You know, it's, uh, why, why would I need to have that piece of information? Of course, it doesn't matter what I think. You, you need to know that information to pass the exams. And, uh, but I had to get back into the science type of examinations. But uh, I, I certainly think... Having a law degree prepared me well for going into medicine. I think it prepares you well for all aspects of various jobs or various professions because it teaches you the, the underlying structure. Um, I'm currently co-director of a course called TIP, which is the Transition into Postgrad Practice, which helps medical students transition into their residency training, helps prepare them for the LMCC, etc., and one of the topics we have to cover is government and medicine. You know, what are the actual things that control medicine? And 
as a lawyer, you understand, you know, statutes, the jurisdictional issues that the province has jurisdiction over healthcare. In order to practice medicine in British Columbia, you have to be licensed through the College of Physicians of uh, British Columbia. And the Royal College has no jurisdiction as far as granting a license is concerned. So very, very important not to upset the the College of Physicians and Surgeons of British Columbia because they're the people who license you to practice medicine. So given your background and how much communication and all these skills were emphasized, I would have thought maybe the natural progression for you would have been into a specialty like psychiatry or public health. What was it about pathology that really stood out to you? How did you develop an interest in it? That's a very good question. And I definitely developed an interest early in medicine. I think it's, uh, you don't get a lot of exposure in medicine to pathology. And it's, that's true more now than it was back then. And I honestly don't think before I went into medical school, I knew that pathology existed. When I was doing medical school, there was a, it was the old traditional curriculum where you started off with your basic sciences in first year. So medical biochemistry, um, microbiology, physiology, et cetera. Um, and then in second year, we did pharmacology, um, infectious diseases, and pathology as an actual course. And that meant that you had great exposure to the different areas. We, we had day, weekly sessions in pathology, and you would interact with the pathologists. So it was something I was always interested in. And laboratory medicine, it's a very logical area. There are various areas of pathology. So within pathology, I'm a general pathologist, meaning I've got training in surgical pathology, medical biochemistry, medical microbiology, and hematopathology. And each of those has slightly different um, areas that they are focused on, obviously. But again, different sort of applications. I always enjoyed medical biochemistry because it was a very logical type of process you know, your thyroid levels, they either go up or they go down or they're normal. And it's a very, very logical approach. You know, why would your thyroid levels go up? Why would they go down? And I think, you know, for people who are logical and enjoy sort of working through problems, I think it's a very, very rewarding type of uh, profession. The same is true in in surgical pathology. And I think probably most medical students and physicians don't understand that there's a certain degree of judgment involved in assessing a pathologic slide. So, you know, when you assess a patient, you're able to take the history, do the physical, order lab tests, etc. And you should be able to generate a diagnosis probably what, without the lab and the radiology, probably 75 to 80% of the time. Um, and when you actually need a biopsy or something like that, we can give you an answer probably 95% of the time, but in some cases, it, it is an opinion based on assessing the slide. And some people will have differing opinions, in which case we would try and convey the lack of consensus or the fact that there are different opinions. So it's, that was one thing I found out only when I got into pathology. It was not, when you look down a microscope, it is obviously this, you know, the majority of the time, definitely true. Just like any other field of medicine, you know, the majority of what you deal with is fairly straightforward and fairly classic type of scenarios. But occasionally there are situations and you have to apply, you know, just like in uh, clinical medicine where you're examining patients, you would ask for additional 
laboratory tests and uh, imaging in pathology, the majority of times in surgical pathology, you can make the diagnosis on an HNE, but then in certain situations, you have to do additional tests with immunohistochemistry, special stains, et cetera. So that was also interesting to me. And what I like particularly about pathology in each of the different realms, it's very, very focused in the sense you have one case, you analyze that case, you render a diagnosis and you're done. So it's sort of, there's, there's a, you're not continually having to follow up on different parts of patient care. Um, interesting, you, you know, the uh, patient care, in my opinion, part of the uh, difficulties facing modern medicine is there are so many different things that have to be followed up with respect to social work, you know, care at home, pharmacy, etc. And I think, in my opinion, pathology is the most scientifically based and most the closest to what I actually did in my undergrad, which I find very rewarding. Wow. Thank you for that insight. I just want to kind of go back a little bit into the specifics regarding, obviously, you've, you know, gone through law school and you actually practiced as a lawyer. I could imagine that, you know, having that change of heart, realizing this isn't what you want to do and, you know, pursuing medicine, it's quite daunting. Like, how did you feel when you were going through that transition? Was there any, like, unexpected challenges you faced? So a couple of, good question. Certainly, when you practice law for two or three years, as I had, you're making a salary. Uh, you are, you know, in charge of certain things. You have control of your life. You then go back to the student, and in some situations, or the student scenario, for so if I would be doing a clinical rotation in years uh, three or four, there might be someone who is quite a bit younger than me telling me what to do. <laughs> Uh, you know, I personally, that, that's not a problem. I think for some people it could be. I think you have to make sure that uh, you don't let your, you know, that sort of thing bother you. It's, it's, it, it can be difficult. The other thing, of course, is around exam time. You sort of say to yourself, well, why am I doing this? You know, I had a nice job. It was well paid. Um, and you're, you're stressed around exam time. Obviously, like all students are, it's just your natural tendencies. So there are definitely things to get rid of. Fortunately, at the time, I, I was married, and uh, so my wife was very supportive. We didn't have any children when I started medical school, but I actually had a son that was born in between um, second and third year. So again, that is also, you know, uh, puts another layer on things because going through medical school and having children, you're obviously, you know, things like daycare, making sure that you've got time for the family, various other activities. Uh, it's very important to make sure that that occurs. And I think probably because I had a son, um, it was very important for me to choose a profession where I would have the ability, because I was older, to spend more time with my family. Wow. I can't imagine being a medical student and a young father and... <laughs> <laughs> having to handle, you know, the navigation to, of, you know, figuring out what residency you want to do, but also reminiscing about your past and being like, oh, I was working. I was totally fine. Absolutely. And, just... you know, uh, like many things, you have an income. And 
at the time we were fortunate because we had not bought a house so we had no mortgage obligations um at the time we had no student loans outstanding anything like that everything had been paid off because my wife was working as well and so from that perspective financially we were not burdened but it's certainly not that uh there are certain considerations you have to take in order to make that decision and because we didn't have financial constraints um the other constraint that you have to consider is you may be a little older when you finish and to what extent you know there are some specialties that go on and on you know you sub-specialize after your specialty and you know so five years of specialization followed by sub-specialty it's going to be a long time before you actually finish your training and, and out in the workforce was there ever a moment given that you had such a stable career basically everything set up for you did you ever regret your decision to pursue medicine? No, definitely not. Uh, I'm extremely happy doing what I do right now. I think I really enjoy doing surgical pathology, really enjoy teaching medical students. I'm actively involved in various administrative activities. I think pathology permits me to do those kind of activities in addition to the pathology itself. And it's very, very rewarding. I. Every day I'm happy coming into work. Uh, and again, I was happy in the firm I worked at. They were a nice bunch of people. I actually played tennis with one of the people I used to work with. I played tennis this morning with him. Um, and it's so I stay in touch with the, uh, those individuals, good group of individuals. Again, it was just the nature of the work. And I think people will, you have a certain period of time within which you can adjust your careers or your career trajectory. And you should take into account, you know, what sort of where you see yourself in the future. And I'm very happy. I think I'm very fortunate in what has happened to me because I've ended up, you know, in your era, in your group. Obviously, a lot of people would like to stay in Vancouver or the lower mainland. Uh, but again, there may not be positions. For me, it's worked out very, very well. I was able to you know, get a position at UBC BGH and uh, I'm able to teach. But again, I think I would be perfectly happy working in a community hospital and doing just regular sign-out pathology. And in that situation, I'd probably be more involved in teaching other physicians, you know, doing rounds with them in the morning and various other activities. I think that's such a brave thing to assess your life and to, to see like beyond and already what people would consider successful career, somebody seeing you as someone who's made it in life and seeing that you wanted more and then pursuing those things is very courageous, especially if there's uncertainty in that. Um, so I think that's amazing that you, you were able to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, looking back, I'm, I'm surprised it, it takes time. It's interesting because I have talked to, for example, residents who have match to something that perhaps they're not happy with and they're talking about changing. Interestingly, the younger you are, the more concerned or the more, so if your friends, your peers are at a certain stage and you take a career change, you sort of fall behind the benchmark, if you like. And my advice is it's not a race. You know, when you get to be my age, it doesn't matter if you've done an extra five years or fewer five years. When you're young like you two, you know, in your early 20s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, 
it's it's more important you know it's it's more it's magnified because you have lived shorter lives and so you know if someone that you graduate from medical school is now completing their family practice as going to be working and you've changed and you're now a couple of years behind because you've made a change or the same in law you know my friends who would be lawyers they're now partners in the firm etc and i'm sort of still going through residency training you know it's you can't let that bother you you know mm. i think you do have to keep in mind the end goal and understand that when you get to be 40 something years old 50 something years old it just doesn't matter mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> i think as medical students oftentimes we kind of get you know a bit immersed in the process of just trying to get through the next step trying to yeah. achieve that sense of stability but i think we kind of often find it hard to balance at times, you know, how does medicine fit me? Like, what are my needs? And I think it's this ever, you know, changing tides. Like it's just two forces that are really hard to balance, but hearing your story, I think it really shows that at the end of the day, you just really have to follow your heart and what you envision and try to find something that will help you, you know, fulfill and develop that to the best of its abilities. So thank you for sharing that story. That was very uh, insightful and yeah and again just you guys are okay with this this is okay yeah this, this lovely yeah dr Nimir, you're like a natural as yeah, always. No, totally. <laughs> but we knew this yeah. would happen so. right. <laughs> we knew we knew you, no no surprises here no, oh a question i had was was there ever a time where you decided to or considered marrying your two uh fields of expertise pathology and law yeah so initially you know, again, you guys are going to be applying to CARMS and one of the issues you have when you're applying to CARMS in your interviews, you try and distinguish yourself from your colleagues as to why they should choose you versus someone else. So I had, when I went into CARMS, I had decided that um, what areas I was interested in and uh, by the time I'd finished the CARMS interviews, I was determined to do either family practice or pathology and that I would only match here in Vancouver, so I wasn't gonna to go to Ontario. Um, and then I put pathology first. So because I was very interested in pathology, when I did my interview, in order to distinguish myself from others, I did say that I was interested in forensic pathology. And that was actually saying something that was true because of course I did have the legal background and I think most people do have some sort of interest in forensic pathology just because of what's on TV, et cetera. Um, and so certainly that was one of the things I said during my interview was that I could envision marrying the two in the sense of doing, because of my legal background and pathology, uh, one of the options when I was at the end of uh, training would to be do some forensic pathology. We do have a forensic pathologist here who is a lawyer and is also obviously a forensic pathologist. So, you know, uh, I'm not the only one that's done this sort of uh, this route. What I found when I did my residency training, I really did enjoy just regular pathology, and there was no need for me to subspecialty train in forensic pathology. Um, there's a certain degree of flexibility in any specialty you do. The more subspecialized you get, the fewer opportunities for moving around, or the the fewer opportunities to determine where you'd like to be exist. Pathology, you have to work at a hospital. Uh, essentially, there are some private labs, obviously life labs. Uh, 
they do have pathologists, not surgical pathologists, but they do have hematopathologists, medical biochemists. So you can work, but again, you have to be in a relatively larger location to work for a private lab. You have to be in a center that has a hospital with a pathology lab uh, because specimens with the current technology and evolution of systems, many specimens are now sort of sent to a central location. So sort of smaller pathology labs and some of the very small community hospitals no longer require pathologists to be on site because you can give them oversight remotely using uh, video conferencing like this or teleconference, et cetera. And again, because of the advances in technology, if you're in charge of the laboratory and you're in charge of the various coagulation machines, et cetera, those results are available online. You can do your QA, QC online. So, I think one challenge for many specialists and even more so subspecialists is the more skills you gain in any one area, the more you lose in other areas. So for you, was it difficult letting go of that lawyer in you? Something that you've trained so many years to do. That's very interesting because yes, I think my inclination is always to be as broad as possible. And coming out of high school, I had done as well in the English history type areas as I had in the science areas. So I didn't really have a distinction for me as to this is what my particular area is, which is probably why I started off going into sciences, determined that, yeah, because of my science background, that actually makes me quite employable in law. Uh, when I was doing law, I actually was interested in the area of patent, trademark, and copyright because of my science background. So similar to what you've described, where in medicine, I don't have, there's not a lot of people with legal background. In law, there's not a lot of people with medical background. And consequently, you know, I've sort of fallen towards that. And again, a very interesting area of law, but coming to Vancouver, it just didn't have the same uh, amount there in, as it did in Toronto. But in my, when I was coming through here, interestingly, what I get asked a lot of questions, not so much now, but when I was first working at Vancouver General Hospital as a pathologist, my colleagues would come and ask me, not for my opinion on a slide, but for <laughs> legal advice. You know, Mike, I've got this issue or, you know, and so there is a tremendous amount of knowledge you acquire both through law school and through practicing law. But as I've said, I actually do use it quite frequently because I have administrative roles, and I'm not sure if I've fallen into those just because I'm comfortable with them, but the administrative roles require you to, for example, review documents, and it's just in my nature and how I was trained in law school and in the law firm to go through things with a fine tooth comb, and I'll sort of say, yes, this, is, this doesn't make sense how you've written it. This doesn't make sense as far as the structure, you know, in medicine, it's very interesting talking to some people where they say, we'll do this. And it's almost like they think they can do it just because they said it. And it's, well, there is a structure in place. And in order for this to occur, you need to examine what that structure is and ensure that you do have the authority to make those changes because you can't just go around making changes. So although you're absolutely right, I'm not reviewing documents in the same detail I was. The nature of my work, I do still do a lot of creating documents, revising documents, um, and using my legal skills, not to the same extent, probably in just a different manner. 
I think uh, on your office, we got to put the title, you know, Dr. Nemo, pathologist, but also pro bono legal counsel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Um, I'd like to focus a little bit just about your particular school experience. You know, how was it? I'm imagining you moved from out east coming to Vancouver, a brand new city, and you went to UBC for medical school. You know, how was that experience as a medical student and a clerk? Um, so again, uh, when I first, I'm not sure, are you either from Ontario? No, I'm from here in Vancouver. Yeah. Okay. So we had moved directly from England to Nanaimo. And when I was finishing off high school, the furthest west or east, sorry, in Canada I had gone was Vancouver. Um, and so my parents suggested that I should go to uh, somewhere in Ontario. And I did the uh, application. I did. I, I was actually awarded a scholarship by Queen's University. So that sort of made up my mind for me. And when I went to Ontario, it was very interesting because all of a sudden I see these double doors with grills in between to remove the snow from your feet. Uh, they had screens on their windows for the bugs. And I, just in Nanaimo, we just don't have that. So that was kind of interesting. Um, I really, really enjoyed Queen's University. It's a very collegial atmosphere. The campus is relatively small. They have a lot fewer students than they do at UBC. And a large number of the students are like I was from out of province or from out of the city of Kingston. You know, Kingston is sort of known for the university, the penitentiaries and the psych hospitals. Um, so the actual number of locals is quite limited. It's about 60,000. So very, very strong camaraderie within the uh, actual undergraduate program. So I can't speak to what that's like at UBC. Um, I can say that the medical school is probably a bit like Queens or another small university maybe not to the same extent for you guys, but when I went through, it was 120 students. So we all knew virtually, every, it, it, I would say everyone in, this, in the class because you start off in first year and you're in lectures together. Uh, you do various small groups. And uh, now I think the school is up to what, 288. So it may not be possible to know them to the same extent, but certainly my undergrad, or sorry, my medical school experience was very, very good. I had really, really good friends I uh, keep in touch with. Uh, one of my best friends is a surgeon in uh, Vancouver Island um, and, you know, see him on a regular basis. I see classmates of mine on a regular basis. I, I bumped into a urologist friend of mine this morning and, you know, it's just it's, he sat beside me in uh, medical school because we we're very close in alphabet. And that's how we used to do it in those days. Um, but, yeah, I think to me, so I can't compare undergraduate at UBC but I can say that the faculty of medicine, because it's sort of a small group or cohort, it has that atmosphere. And I think when I went through, it was very, very close knit group of students. Uh, and that's very, very conducive to a, a good working environment. Uh, similar to law school. I think law school at Western was probably 80 to 90 students. So again, small group, uh, very, very, you're doing everything together. And I think that naturally forms a bond between you. Uh, and clearly you're going to establish friends and relationships that will persist beyond the training. So I have that from medical school. I have that from law school and I have that from uh, undergraduate as well. You know, entering medical school, 
it obviously sounds like you know given your circumstances you would you were preferably looking for something that would fit your life you know you being a young father at that time and such you know was pathology the initial specialty you were thinking of as you entered as a medical student or how did you kind of discover that definitely not um when i started off just again more of my background so my dad was a family or yeah he was a family physician uh and he moved from england to nanaimo my my mom was a nurse you know, so classic you know doctor nurse that kind of stuff um and dad was a, a family physician in Nanaimo for a, a long period of time. And I guess sort of, it's one of those things when you're growing up with a physician as a, a parent, you're not really thinking of, I, I was not thinking of it as a career or anything. And so maybe that's why when I went to undergraduate, I sort of, you know, decided to do some sciences, but wasn't really sure exactly what I wanted to do and went into law. And when I went into medical school, I suppose the only real field of medicine I knew was family practice because that's what my dad was. I knew that there were specialties, um, but it's not that I had particularly thought about a, a specialty and going through the training. I think what, because I didn't have any preconceived notions of, I want to be a this from the day I was born. Right. Um, I think I was what open to, to those kind of areas and did do, broad electives, not trying to focus on a particular type of specialty. And interestingly enough, as I said, uh, family practice, I could have always uh, finished off family practice, go with, back to Nanaimo and take over my dad's practice. Or, you know, a, a specialty, I sort of, when I did the CARMS interviews, I did apply broadly just to make sure that uh, others were, of, that I might be interested in. And I found that during the CARMS interview process, the pathologists I interacted with were the nicest people. They seemed the, the happiest. They were smiling. And I remember one of them saying, Mike, do you want to know what a pathologist makes? You know, and uh, <laughs> that kind of, and they just seemed very, very happy. And they were at various stages of their career. And consequently, you could see that, yes, you know, in the future, I would be happy as a pathologist. And I think that's another plus to pathology. Assuming that your eyes, uh, you retain your, your good eyesight, pathology is not like surgery where you have to stand for prolonged periods of time. Um, and we have many people who, as they retire, they actually do retire, but then come back as locums because they enjoy it so much. And it's just this sort of, it's problem solving. You look down the microscope, you see that particular pattern, you render a diagnosis and they just enjoy it. And some of them are working into their seventies and they just, to them, it's, it's not really work. It's just, they really enjoy what they do. So, you know, certainly I did not see pathology as my career when I went into medical school. You know, uh, I think it's even harder for you now because it's more difficult to get exposure to things and, for example, if you're in surgery, I think the nature of the situation is you may not be the one that's actually right beside the surgeon looking at what's going on. You may be the third or fourth in the line, or they may even have you going and rotating or rounding on the patients while they're doing the surgery. And my recommendation for medical students would be try and get a realistic assessment of what it is that those particular specialists or family physicians do during the day. Uh, I, I am sure that, you know, the surgeons, they're not operating every single day. You know, they have certain days and then 
clearly you have to follow up with your patients in hospital and once they're out, discharged from hospital. Uh, and so make sure you understand fully what it is that you will be taking part in. Uh, my dad actually, you know, a couple of useful things he said to me regarding choosing a profession. He said, first thing when I went to Queens, he said, yes, uh, you can either do something you enjoy and get uh, and may not be paid well for it, but you'll be happy. Or you can get paid well, you may not enjoy it, but you'll have time to do what you, mm -hmm. what the money will allow you to do. He also did tell me, he says, don't go into medicine for money. He says, you know, it's there's no way that you will be happy because it's not, you have to want to do medicine for medicine itself. Um, and then he also said that as a family physician, he was advised by someone that if you want to, you know, be a good family physician or physician, he says, go somewhere where it's small enough that you will get to do things, but it's large enough that there's backup. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't the kind of person that wanted to go to the small town where he was the only person. Um, and, you know, Nanaimo was a fairly uh, good size for him. In England, we lived in the, the southwest of England in a place called Somerset, uh, town of Yeovil. Same thing, like, you know, uh, a good size allowed him to do things, but also not uh, not be, there was always specialist backup if you needed it. So I think when you're going through your training, try and get a realistic appreciation for what those specialties do on a day-to-day -day basis, understanding that it's not necessarily what's portrayed on TV or what you may have a mental image of. Um, by the time my dad finished, you know, he was saying, yeah, he was spending a lot more time doing administrative things like working through his lunch hour, calling social workers, calling pharmacists, you know, arranging for various things. And uh, to him, he said it had changed considerably. You know, when he first came to Nanaimo, he said he'd call radiology, likely he'd actually talk to radiologists. These days, it's, you know, you get an answering machine and if this is an emergency, call 911 or, you know, it's... Uh, things have changed. So, I think you've given some really valuable pieces of advice there. Um, so how would you recommend that people get an accurate as possible picture of any given specialty? I mean, I know shadowing is a way, listening to metamorphosis is another one. <laughs> any other suggestions? Um, so definitely shadowing. And if there are areas of medicine, I suppose, that you're not exposed to, um, try and do some shadowing in that. I would suggest, you know, uh, depending on what stage of training you're at, if you've got, if you're interacting with residents, so, you know, you can talk to the residents or talk to the staff, you know, get them, try and get a realistic assessment by them of what they think now compared to what they have in the past. Essentially, that's what you're doing with this metamorphosis is trying to get a snapshot from individuals. But obviously, you know, you've got a, a captive group of individuals that you're asking this question. But if you're going through the rotations, you know, and do it judiciously, don't sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, but if you have a good rapport with one of the attendings, a senior resident or whatever, just say, yeah, you know, I'm contemplating this as a career choice. What do you think, you know? Um, and hopefully they will give you an honest assessment. But I think, yeah, what you've described are the best ways to do it, to try and get some information from this process or from your shadowing, your actual electives, but try, if it's something you're serious about, try and talk to the more senior individuals uh, 
and get a sense from them is it what they expected when they first started you know that's some really valuable advice um just listening to you know how you kind of found pathology and some of the positives you gain from it if i break down the elements it sounds like obviously it's like a very visual very diagnostic field and if you kind of think about those elements and apply it to different specialties like i think about radiology too yeah you know what made you choose pathology versus radiology you know like i was kind of wondering if you can elaborate a bit about that if that sure. even considered I, your mind you know they are both diagnostic specialties the other one that's very similar if you like and we have someone here who does uh who did dual train or dual certify in dermatology and yeah. um, pathology and is now a dermatopathologist. Very visual. Um, from my perspective, I think the pathology, there's more detail oriented. Uh, radiology, you certainly, you, you, you identify lesions and can provide a differential, but the pathologist is the one who actually looks at the tissue sample and renders the diagnosis. Uh, so I think from, in my opinion, there was a bit more the actual certainty of it. Um, again, I'm not sure that radiologists interact to the same extent that pathologists do because essentially you have certain machines and you then have someone who is reading the films as opposed to pathologists who have their individual microscopes distributed throughout. So I don't, you know, I did look at diagnostic radiology and I just didn't see that it had the same applications or it didn't have the same appeal to me because of those uh, I was able to render a more definitive diagnosis by looking down the microscope uh, I seem to have more interactions with my colleagues because it's not just you sitting at the diagnostics field uh, again you know there is one CT scanner that you are then assigned to and you're sitting there diagnosing things on the CT clearly you can then review the films because they are stored and you can analyze them and review them with other individuals. But uh, I, I think, yeah, pathologists had greater scope. Now, that being said, you know, diagnostic radiology, there's also interventional radiology. And, you know, for those of individuals that wanted patient care and actually being able to deploy stents, things like that, I think that's a very exciting field, uh, very, very uh, you know, interesting field and one that you would have patient contact and something that has made huge advances, I think, in treatments of patients. I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier within pathology, the ability to do what you need to do and then leave it behind at work to sure. kind of finish. That's something that is very appealing to not only pathologists, but also those who choose to go into emergency medicine or anesthesia. However, it's kind of a double-edged sword in that once you kind of close the book on that patient, sometimes in other fields, they question whether or not they made the right decision. Is that something you face in pathology? Or is it always that you can go back to the side anytime just to confirm any you doubts? Can. So that's a, a, a excellent question. And certainly, whatever area you go into, you will always have things floating in your mind. You know, as a lawyer, the same thing, you know, did I, did I put the right uh, abbreviation or sorry, uh, punctuation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in pathology, it is a double-edged sword because yes, you can go back and review the slide. We are lucky because we have the advantage because we work for or with other clinicians. 
they will contact us. They say, you know, Mike, that didn't really make sense. You know, uh, it was a real mass and you just called it a benign lesion. And it may be that what was written on the requisition didn't convey the appropriate information. I personally am happy to go and review that slide, maybe cut some deeper sections on it and reanalyze it. In addition, of course, if they're malignant diagnoses, they get referred to the cancer agency, the slides might be reviewed. So you're right. Uh, I think it depends on the nature of the case. And certainly you do have the opportunity before you sign it out to show it to people, which will give you reassurance, including people with subspecialty training. Uh, you can always pull it back. And that is, again, so people who are thinking about pathology and not worrying about stressing or something, if you are a clinician and you examine a patient's ankle and said that there was no evidence of necrotizing fasciitis at the time I examined it, no one is going to be able to argue with that, assuming you have documented it properly. Whereas with me, if I say that this is a tuber adenoma of the colon, they can just pull the slide up to 18 years later and say, no because it is a physical documentation. Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword in that way. Um, again, probably the more experience you gain, the less concern you have, you, the, the more you're sort of, uh, you, you uh, are comfortable making the diagnosis. Uh, but again, it's, you, you have the ability in pathology to show it to someone. Whereas let's say you're in family practice, and you have someone that comes in with, I don't know, a rash, whatever, you can give them a prescription, but I don't think there's the same opportunity to just say, oh, I'm just going to get my colleague to come in and have a look. I mean, you can do that to a certain extent, but not to the same extent here where, you know, I can just take a slide and go just walk down the hallway and show it to someone. So, yeah, I, I think it does exist, but not to the same extent, I would say, in others. Mm. You touched on something um there's a cultural trend that a lot of physicians comment on towards covering your butt kind of medicine um, with all the, you know, the increase in medical legal issues. Is that a major concern for pathologists, given that exactly what you said, anyone has access to the slides and what you wrote about them years down the road? Again, it's like other fields of medicine, it is evolving. And in certain institutions or certain um, countries, they may recommend, for example, if you're giving a, or making a diagnosis of a malignancy, a cancer, then you get a second opinion. So you actually do do it. So it's a, it's a double uh, confirmation. Um, I guess as far as pathologists are concerned, the best way to know to what extent pathologists are held accountable or an objective measure, if you would like, is to see how much they pay for CMPA. And so I don't know if you know this, but as far as CMPA is concerned, I believe obstetricians are the highest. Yes. And that's obviously because if something goes wrong with delivering a baby, you know, fortunately it's so uncommon, but if it does, that's going to be for a long period of time. Um, in pathology, I believe currently we pay about $5,000 a year. And so I think that's quite reasonable compared to other groups. Uh, and that obviously is based on issues that have been identified with pathologic diagnosis and being reviewed. There is an accepted rate of mistakes acceptable within pathology, you know, based on various parameters. Um, 
And that doesn't mean that, you know, if you haven't made any mistakes up until December, you can just say, okay, great. I don't have to think anymore. I can just, because I've got a year's worth to uh, use up. I think it's, uh, it is in order to ensure that, the, you know, always the most important thing in medicine is patient care and ensuring that the patient receives the best care available. And just like you can in medicine or other aspects of medicine, get a second opinion, it is entirely possible to get a second opinion on a slide. And I, I have been contacted sometimes by patients or physicians saying, you know, is it possible to have this reviewed? And to me, it's like, absolutely. I, I don't think you can try and say, no, my word is the definitive word. I think you have to understand that, yeah, as I said, the majority of cases in pathology, surgical pathology are straightforward. But if it's not a straightforward case, I think you should try and involve a subspecialty trained or various other parameters to try and determine what is the appropriate diagnosis. And there are certain areas in pathology where they are encouraging the assessment to be made by someone with subspecialty training. So for example, in a patient with inflammatory bowel disease, you have a predisposition to develop a malignancy and there are pre-malignant lesions that arise. They recommend that those kind of lesions be, be reviewed by someone with gastrointestinal pathology training in order to ensure that it's appropriate diagnosis is made. Because if you overcall it, someone might have their colon removed that didn't need to, or conversely, if it was undercalled, they may have a malignancy developed that uh, could have been prevented. But it's in a process of evolution. I think clearly the current um, situation you describe, people do become more concerned about lawyers. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case in Canada because clearly we, we hear what goes on in the States and we're a different system from that. But I think patients are much better informed now. They have access to the internet and consequently they may well have more questions regarding your diagnosis and ask for clarification of certain points. I think you've highlighted some really amazing aspects of pathology or the culture of pathology. Um, a, that it's such a collegial specialty. B, that you always have backup. C, that there's an attitude towards leaving your ego behind and really being open to second opinions. Sometimes you don't see that, that openness um, in other specialties. Is there anything else you'd like to comment on your field's culture? Um, again, I think there is, it, it is as a group, people are very, very supportive of one another. And I know, for example, um, several of my colleagues that are younger than me now have young families and they'll often come in and say, Mike, you know, uh, so-and-so at the daycare has got sick. I need to go pick them up and take them home. And I'm going, that's no problem. I can cover your frozen section for the remainder of the day or you know mike I, I you know i need to do this uh can you cover this particular area while i'm gone and i think yes again vgh what i don't want to do is speak for other groups all i can speak for is the group that i'm part of um and i'm the division head here for surgical anatomical pathology at vgh and we are very very collegial supportive of one another and it's something that i try and inculcate in the group and I think it, it's, it's very similar to other things that we've discussed where you have a certain amount of people, uh, you have a culture, you know, if you're the only person, 
it's hard for you to get someone to back up, back you up because there is no one. It, it's just you. Uh, if there's a group, clearly you can rely on the group, but you have to have that group buy into the concept of supporting one another. And most pathologists I know are of that type of, uh, you know, they have that approach to their work. They're very, very supportive. Uh, I've never had anyone that I take a slide to say, oh, this is an insult, not a consult, mm. right? Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very good. And, and I think it's maybe it's in the pathologist's nature. They, they do enjoy teaching and sharing their knowledge with others. And so they're quite happy to look at, an, at a challenging case. Now, that being said, it's sort of like uh, any, any field of medicine, and, and this would be my uh, recommendation to medical students and to residents, uh, it reminds me of someone when I was doing my ch pediatric rotation at Children's Hospital, and there was a, a patient, and there's something to do with the cardiac uh, system, and they consulted cardiology, and the pediatric cardiologist was very adamant that you guys better have worked it up yourself as opposed to just saying, yeah, that's hard, contact pediatric cardiology. So the same is true in pathology. If I just look at a slide or if I don't look at a slide and just say, oh, this is apparently this, this diagnosis, can you look at it for me? You know, then you, you won't get a lot of support for that because you're just not pulling your own weight or doing the, the work you should. But if you've done, you've worked it up, you've ordered some special stains that are appropriate, and you say, this is what I think it is, then they're more than happy to work it through. So I think it's, uh, as I say, it's a consult versus an insult. Uh, you know, don't dump work on other individuals, but work it up appropriately, and then they're more than happy to help you. Wow, the camaraderie of pathology, it sounds very, you know, tight-knit and supportive. Um, I kind of wanted to cover a little bit about, I guess, some of the conceptions or maybe the misconceptions of pathology. And you did mention, you know, briefly about patient care and such, but I think as medical students, we often think about pathology and, you know, oh, it's always in the basement and such. Um, do you agree with the statement that maybe in pathology, there's rather a lack of patient like bedside interaction? And if you do agree with that, is that how do you kind of, you know, find ways to, I guess, Fill in that that's gap. A, that's a great question, and it's actually a question we ask all the applicants who are applying to residency training for pathology. And again, you know, people comment uh, on my teaching style or my interaction with medical students and various other things. And I think growing up, I picked it up from my dad, who's a family physician, and he was he had very very good bedside manner and was very very popular with his patients, uh, had a large uh, patient base. And uh, there, you know, I can remember as a kid going out to the mall, it's a relatively small town. And, uh, you know, patient, patients would stop him and say hi, we would just keep walking, like we don't even know him, because you know, it's, it's so embarrassing. It's like my dad is being talked to by these people that we don't know, blah, blah, blah. So I think just listening to him answer the phone, his interaction with other individuals, it's just something I picked up from him. Um, so there is no, or there is very minimal patient care in pathology, and there are areas you could go into. For example, uh, medical biochemistry. Some of them run the lipid uh, lipid clinics, things like that. So you can do that. In addition, the other things that uh, you have are your interaction with others. So it's not necessarily you're not having it's it's patient care. And I guess the question is. As far as the patient care is concerned, 
that is not necessarily something that you're going to miss. Um, again, it, it depends on individuals. Some individuals really like to be able to interact with others and provide, you know, the, uh, what would you call it, um, not just medical help, but also, you know, talking them through problems, etc. That That part doesn't exist in pathology because, of course, it is just medical problems. Um, it's not something that I particularly miss. I think I would have been, it was the classic situation when you're going through residency training and I was doing a rotating internship at St. Paul's and they're saying, you're going into pathology, that's a waste of your interpersonal skills. You know, you should be doing this or that. And to me, it's like, no, I think um, because you can use those skills, you can interact with others in a variety of scenarios. Um, and again, I think you need to determine for yourself to what extent do you need that interaction? Um, and I guess, in my opinion, part of it is it can be very draining dealing with patients because I, I make the diagnosis of a malignancy probably every day. I'm not the one that has to break the news to the patient, right? That is either the surgeon who did the biopsy, the colonoscopist, whatever. You know, I've just done my job and that's it. So in a way that is easier. I think that would be very difficult for me because I do care a lot, you know, uh, about patients and trying to break bad news to them. I think that would be very draining on a regular basis. And again, takes a certain type of individual. Uh, and you need to determine for yourself what sort of things are you capable of handling um, on a regular basis. And, you know, I think certain specialties are probably subject to burnout because of that, you know, either the high acuity, you know, the constant uh, dealing with the pressures of patients coming in who have been in motor vehicle accidents or other things or breaking bad news to patients, etc. Um, and pathology, again, you know, the, the interactions with patients. Interestingly, I, I do occasionally get interactions with patients and the, the patients are usually quite abused saying, oh, I didn't realize that uh, pathologists could actually, you know, interact with patients <laughs> and stuff like that. And we're quite happy. And um, the other, you know, it, it may change over the years, but again, it's, it's just what the nature of the, the, what you're doing is you can't do everything. And I think you mentioned that before, the further you go along in a career, the more you focus on particular aspects and in pathology, that aspect is just not there. I think the other side of that, that some people might find that they're not willing to compromise on is yes, you are spared that the burnout aspect of that, the challenges of, of having to deal with your patients on a personal level, but you're also not getting the positive feedback. And I think a lot of us go into medicine wanting to feel like we've helped someone. And for a lot of people that translates to talking to them directly, hearing, thank you, you've helped me so much, doctor so-and-so, um, you know, getting the gift baskets full of cookies every Christmas. You don't get that in pathology. That is a very astute observation. I'm not, I have not yet received something in the paper saying, <laughs> thank you for the diagnosis of cancer, Dr. Nimmo. Right. I mean, it's just, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, when I did my rotation at St. Paul's, you know, you're doing your obstetrics and there's the uh, announcement of the birth and thank you to this, uh, the team at St. Paul's. And then they list the individuals and I was listed. Uh, my dad used to receive every Christmas or, uh, you know, various times throughout the year, uh, cards, uh, 
chocolates, whatever. Yeah, so I'm fully aware of that. And you're absolutely right. No, um, rarely it does happen. You know, if you've been able to sort something out for someone where there is sort of uh, some debate as to what the actual diagnosis was and it's sent over, uh, but exceedingly rare. Absolutely mm -hmm. correct. I think we need to start having a day where it's a thank your fellow pathologist day. <laughs> Pathologist appreciation yeah. days and baskets. <laughs> I mean, I just, one of the strange types, uh, and again, I, I don't know how much time we've got, but I'm happy to relate stories to you. You know, uh, I think it was in the first year of my practice out at UBC, uh, the classic situation, I think I cut myself when I was uh, uh, grossing in a, a breast specimen. And so obviously, uh, you were not able to test people at the back then without their, well, you had to get permission, but um, back then, so this would be back in 2000, um, if there was not an indication, you had to go and uh, get the permission of the patient um, to see whether or not they could test the patient. And so I actually went up and saw the patient and said, yeah, you know, um, you had a mastectomy, uh, it was for breast cancer, and I cut myself, would you mind if I test? And her response was, no problem, but in return, you have to bring my breast up here and go through it with me. <laughs> so, and of course, I didn't mind. I said, yeah, no problem, so long as you're not squeamish. And so, you know, uh, there is the opportunity for interacting with patients. The cardiac pathologist down at St. Paul's Hospital, when the uh, hearts are removed, they do provide, so there's a heart transplant, the patient is offered the opportunity to come and see their heart. Some people, it's like, no, don't want to see that thing ever again. Other people are very interested. And, you know, clearly human beings are totally different in how they react to things. Um, and I have always been of the mind that it's their specific, it's a piece of them. And if they would like to come and see it, I have no problem with that whatsoever. You know, within the constraints of maintaining patient safety and uh, time constraints, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, and she was very interested. And I showed her, you know, this is the mass. This is where they cut the, this is the margin between you that remains and where the tissue was re, uh, removed. She's a very, very, uh, very pleasant individual. Hmm. I think that can provide a lot of closure for some people. Yeah. You see it in dermatology too, when something gets removed, it's yeah. like something that was a part of them that caused them distress or, you know, was dangerous for them. Being able to say goodbye to it and seeing that it's been removed from them can be a very, very interesting and an important experience in yep. letting go. Mm -hmm. I think I just want to dive in a little bit more about just maybe the simpler facts of pathology because I guess in medical school currently we only have exposures to pathology mainly via you know histology learning about slides and such but I guess since you're a pathologist if you can maybe elaborate on like how your day-to-day -day work looks like I think, you know, a lot of us don't really know what happens beyond those lab doors. Sure. So from my, my daily activities, essentially, I show up between eight and nine in the morning and uh, the slides are prepared and come out in the afternoon the day before. So I have the opportunity to look at those slides the day before or look at them when I come in in the morning. We are a teaching institution at Victoria General Hospital. so. Quite often, I will have a resident assigned to me or a medical student, and in which case, if those slides came out the day before, those residents or students are provided with the opportunity to preview the slides, 
and then I will go through the slides with them. So when I come in, I essentially I check my emails, see if there's any meetings that I need to go to, uh, various and, and you know juggle various things to make sure that uh, I'm able to do things. Uh, I then will look at the slides and dictate, make my diagnoses, uh, order any special stains that are required. De depending on the amount of material, most pathologists would be able to get through their daily work by noon. Okay, You then are waiting for the reports to come back. Most pathologists are perfectly capable of taking their one-hour lunch break. Um, I am an employee of Vancouver General Hospital. I'm paid for 37.5 hours a week. I do many, many more hours than that because of teaching and various administrative responsibilities. But, you know, we do, we are able to take our breaks. Uh, in addition, once lunch is finished, uh, we would then wait for the additional stains to come back. Uh, we would review the dictations, make sure that the uh, dictations are correct, uh, pick up any errors. And then we do what is known as signing out. And that is when we actually apply our signature to the report. And that means it's finalized and clinicians are able to view it online. Uh, so obviously that's, that is a typical day of a surgical pathologist when you're on service, just like a surgeon, you know, I go, they go in, they start their surgery at 8 AM in the morning and they do, you know, an appendectomy followed by a uh, mastectomy, whatever, talking for general surgery. Now, that being said, it's not that I'm on service doing this material all the time. Um, I am involved in various academic roles and various administrative roles. So what I do then in the afternoon, I spend time reviewing the cases. I also spend time you know, teaching. We have daily rounds with the medical students or residents um, at BGH. So if they're medical students on site, residents, we have rounds on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and those rounds extend for an hour. And one of the days I would have to do those in the sense of we've got 22 pathologists, so it's split up. So maybe once every two months, I would be doing that. Uh, we have various rounds that we attend, including GI rounds, thoracic rounds, neuropathology rounds. So depending on your areas of specialty, you would attend those where you have clinicians attend. So Tuesday morning is GI rounds or gynae rounds. Um, and general surgeons and the gastroenterologists show up at seven in the morning. We go through cases with them. And these are very clinically based rounds in the sense of they want to confirm what the opinion is from pathology. We have diagnostic imaging there as well. We have surgeons and um, gastroenterologists, you know, is it better to do some surgery? Is it better to do uh, medical therapy, et cetera? Uh, and the same would be true of all the major organ groups, so genitourinary, uh, gynecologic, etc. cetera. Um, and in addition, we have various administrative roles throughout the hospital, and pathologists are able to do those kind of roles because their clinical responsibilities are somewhat adaptable to the schedule. So quite often I will be asked, Mike, can you attend this meeting? And I say, well, you schedule the meeting because I can rearrange my looking at slides to adapt to the meeting. Whereas it's very interesting being co-director of TIP, as I said, you know, working with a family physician or working with a ophthalmologist previously, and they have their list of patients that they have to see, and it's booked for six months in advance. And to me, it's like, oh, I, yeah, no, I have no <laughs> idea what I'll be doing six months from now. No idea whatsoever. But I do know that tomorrow I will have a, uh, several 
trays of gynae pathology slides to look at, and I will render diagnosis. Uh, within the material we receive, there are some, there's varying acuity. So sometimes we get things that are marked urgent. Uh, if there's a query high-grade malignancy and they want to intervene early, then we would put priority on that. Those are all flagged for us. Um, and, you know, in the afternoon, we also have various rounds. Today at 1230, I'm supposed to attend gastroenterology rounds that are internal, where if I'm having a particular interesting or difficult case, I can then show it to the GI pathology group. And there's no gastroenterologist or general surgeons there, but we uh, talk amongst ourselves and say, you know, what is the accepted nomenclature at the current time? Things change over time. I don't, you know, you may not be aware of that, but as things evolve, as our understanding evolves, they change um, the names applied to various lesions. Um, and so you want to make sure that you're using up-to-date uh, terminology. Uh, a lot of my time is spent as the AP division head, uh, talking to individuals of my division. Uh, this morning, I had an issue arise, which delayed me joining you guys. Uh, and it was to do with ensuring that a particular service was covered off. Um, you know, someone had to be somewhere else. So we just sort of uh, rearranged the schedule to cover that and dealing with issues. Um, it depends on the individual, whether or not you want to become involved in administration. Uh, some people enjoy administration. I think maybe my legal background and maybe my interpersonal skills, um, I, I get asked to do it. It's not like I apply for these positions, but they come and ask me, Mike, would you do this? And I'm willing, you know, if someone wants me to do something, I'm more than willing to help. Uh, administration does take up a lot of time um, and it can be very, very, I think some people can find it frustrating because it's not like a small business where you're running it. It's, we are part of a publicly funded system. And so in order to affect change takes time and you can't unilaterally make a decision and expect all others to just fall in line behind you. So I think a lot of it is, it's not political, it's diplomacy. I think uh, having certain diplomatic skills in order to enable people to buy into what you want to do, that's important. Um, so a lot of my time is spent on administration and I personally, you know, that's, that's fine. Uh, and it is rewarding. I think I would encourage medical students as they're going through their careers to become involved in teaching and administration to help, you know, provide some support to the system. Uh, you know, as you're going through, you probably don't realize all of the sacrifices that other people are making to make it more smooth for you. And, you know, giving back, I think is important and ensuring that uh, you, you feel rewarded in what you're doing. So not just doing your medicine, but again, it, it depends on individuals and there are different times in people's careers when they have more or less time available. So in someone who's got a young family and uh, clearly you, you have to make your priorities and, uh, and focus on those sort of things first. Hmm. Is that an opportunity that you found to, to have advocacy for other medical trainees and patients is through your administrative role? Definitely. I think, you know, you've already described the fact that pathology has a relatively low profile and they will quite often, taking the current situation with COVID, uh, clearly because they wanted the hospitals to be uh, relatively empty of regular patients in order to make room for the COVID patients, a lot of things were canceled. 
And in order to, you know, these are things that are need to be done. They may be able to be put off for a certain amount of time, but they need to be done. And the government is now talking about extending the operating room hours or, you know, maybe working weekends, that sort of thing. Now, that being said, they always talk about uh, talking to the surgeon, the nursing staff, whatever. Pathology tends to be forgotten, you know, but again, if they want us to be there, <laughs> it's something that they have to consider. So I think in an administrative role, we certainly would always want to advocate for pathology and make sure that people are making decisions that are taking into account what can be provided by pathology. So, you know, I think that's from a pathology perspective, but certainly in administration, you're able to advocate for your particular area of specialization or for family physicians. And in addition for other, you know, if you if you have a particular patient group that you're supporting, you can advocate for them. And I think, you know, administrative activities can help do that. Hmm. Thank you for that insight. I mean, listening to that, it really, a couple of things I really felt was, wow, like what you just said, like pathologists are in a way, doctors, doctors, that really highlights that. Um, this is a rather simple question, but I think we always wonder, um, you just mentioned and described obviously your day-to-day -day experiences as a pathologist, but in that day-to-day -day experience, like, what do you love the most about it? What makes you wake up every morning and you're like, oh, I'm glad I took this job. Um, definitely my interest is I really enjoy looking down the microscope and making a diagnosis. You know, I can take a slide and you put it down and it's like, it's, it's very rewarding. It's a very visual experience. Um, it's purple and pink. Um, and you, you look at it and you know that you've helped someone because they have gone to see their physician. And let's say that they've got, uh, it's a patient with diarrhea and the colon looks completely normal. And you look at it under the microscope and clearly there's an abnormality and they've got microscopic colitis by conveying that to the clinician, they're able to implement therapy, the patient's going to be helped. Helicobacter pylori gastritis often may not look like anything to the endoscopist. And we're the ones that say, yeah, helicobacter are present. And hopefully that will then be treated and the patient will feel a lot better. You know, identifying a malignancy, you know, hopefully it's identified early. It allows them to intervene early and optimize the outcome for the patient. So I think that definitely is the most rewarding aspect. It is, and I think probably if you talk to most physicians, that's what they will tell you is the most rewarding aspect of their, if you talk to a surgeon, they're going to say the most rewarding thing for me is going in there and removing the appendix or removing the, the tumor. I think that's just, you know, that's what they're trained to do. And that's what I'm trained to do. And it's what I enjoy doing the most. That being said, really, really enjoy teaching. You know, it's uh, really, really enjoy interacting with students and my colleagues. Uh, because I'm the AP division head, I also interact with the technologists and the support staff. And uh, it, it is, I, I enjoy interacting with others. It's, and maybe that's, I, I, because I've given up the interaction with patients, maybe that's how I compensate. Um, <laughs> and, but I do enjoy talking to others. I've enjoyed I'm involved in all sorts of planning meetings for the renovations of the laboratory here at VGH for anatomical pathology. So that's something that I find interesting because you can make a difference. This is something that may not benefit me, but certainly down the years will benefit all those that are coming through training. 
And the other thing I've noticed um, as I get older, um, the people you've trained, you start to see them, you know, taking on positions and, you know, and that's very rewarding. I find having taught students, residents, and then seeing how they go on to their careers and hearing about how they're doing, that also is very rewarding. I think that's one of the, the rewarding aspects of teaching, not only interacting with the students, but hearing how they're doing. And I, when I see on the news, you know, talking to teachers uh, currently when they're thinking of reintroducing the students into, you know, K through seven or the uh, high school, I, I always think that teaching, yeah, it must be very rewarding to see how your students have turned out. Uh, I think there's some commercials on TV right now where the teachers are doing some sort of uh, reach out to the students to say that we miss you and that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, I think teaching is very rewarding. So, yeah, mm. I enjoy I, I a lot of aspects to my work. Mm. And conversely, you know, you did mention, you know, like a specialty won't be perfectly fitting. And yeah. I was wondering, are there any aspects of pathology that you kind of maybe not enjoy so much or wish there was an improvement you would want to see? In? Um, similar to or along the lines of what I've already discussed, and it's to do with, you know, because you're part of a large organization, it can be very frustrating trying to get things changed. Um, and there's a certain inertia in a large institution. And, well, this is the way we've always done it. So why would you want to change it? It's not a nimble response. Um, so that can be frustrating. I think being the anatomic pathology division head, that also, or any sort of uh, leadership position like that, it's kind of like being a parent. And, you know, but they're not really your kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always thought that uh, at daycare, no problem whatsoever wiping my own, my son's snotty nose, but someone else is uh, <laughs> not really interested in that. Um, so, but again, I think, you know, people will come to you with their problems and they can be difficult to deal with, but you, you know, that is your role and you have to step up. And, uh, but that's not something, I think one of the most difficult situations that I would really not want to be involved in or, if I was involved with, I think I'd have a lot of problems, would be in situations of financial restraint if you had to let people go. Mm-hmm. I think personally that would be very difficult for me. My own position would be to kind of decrease everyone's take home in order to maintain everyone. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, you know, that, that may not be an option. Um, but, but yeah, that would be difficult and certainly not something that I would enjoy doing. And again, that, oh, go ahead. Well, that comes with the responsibility of the leadership. You know, uh, you can't just say, I'll do all the good things and anything that's not nice, someone else can do that for me. (laughs) I wish the world worked that way. Exactly. You mentioned actually about finances and, you know, I wanted to kind of briefly cover because a lot of medical students, as uh, when we're in our training, we don't actually get a lot of exposure to the current state of affairs in terms of market and job availability. Um, I wanted to touch upon that a little bit with pathology. Uh, How is the market right now and how is it trending? Like, what do you kind of foresee? So right now, I can tell you that all the graduates from our residency training program are gainfully employed. There's a demand for pathologists. The issue with any specialty is predicting what it's going to be like in five years. So when you start a specialty, I can't say, you know, it may be great when you start the specialty, but then five years from now, 
Uh, and I, I know that certain specialties right now, for example, um, orthopedic surgery, you know, it's difficult to find physicians. Pathology, because pathologists tend to stick around, we actually have a lot of old pathologists. And those old pathologists can't keep going forever. So I don't see a problem for pathology residents getting physicians. In addition, I think what I've described with the advent of all the molecular testing, additional immunohistochemical stains, the amount of work required continues to increase that will require pathology residents. So yeah, I think the job market is good for residents right now, for pathologists. And essentially, I think that will continue. I, I don't see it changing. One of the concerns that is always raised is artificial intelligence and whether or not artificial intelligence will take over the role of a pathologist. So obviously we are at a certain state or a certain point in evolution of these systems. And you had asked me before the difference between diagnostic imaging and pathology. In diagnostic imaging, the creation of an online image is actually saving you time because you don't have to create the actual uh, plate or uh, film. In pathology, in order to generate a digital image, you have to create the slide. You can't just take the tissue and scan it and create the image. So in imaging, you take the patient, you scan them, and that creates the image. In pathology, you take the slide and then scan the slide. So it's creating an additional step. In addition, the, the amount of information we look at in an individual slide, it is at 400 times magnification, meaning the size of our images is extremely high um, or big. Those images are 750 megabytes per slide. And so if you have a large resection specimen with 30 or 40 slides on it, where are you going to store that information and how do you access it? Most pathologists currently would tell you that they're much more comfortable looking down a microscope because you can move the slide around. The technology is not there yet. Um, for digital imaging. And in addition, the subtleties of making the diagnosis, you have to train the computer, obviously, to make the diagnosis in artificial intelligence. Um, the largest volume, per se, if you like, would be in cytology for gynepath. So in British Columbia, I think it's about 600,000 pap smears are performed each year. And there are relatively few types of cells that are present. You know, there's the squamous epithelial cells, there's the uh, glandular cells, some background material. So that to me would be what you would focus on first. Nothing has been developed yet where they are relying on that to make the diagnosis. So it hasn't yet reached the point of replacing the pathologist. Would we get to that point, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road? Quite possible. But again, I think pathologists would be integral into in there's clearly going to be the same situation that you have now where there's relatively straightforward material that maybe the computer could diagnose. But the computer will also then say this is un unable to and this requires more technology or more, sorry, more um, in, uh, individual re review than the actual computer. In a way, it's like blood films, you know. 
back 40 or 50 years ago, everything was done manually. They then developed machines and the machine will analyze it. And the majority, you don't need to look at an actual smear. It's produced by the computer uh, or sort of analyzed by the computer and they will identify whether or not there's a particular issue. But again, there will be some where the parameters are not met and it's flagged and set aside and then you review that. So I think from that perspective, that's probably how AI will become implemented in pathology. The same thing, sort of getting rid of the more routine, allowing you to focus on the more difficult material. Hmm. Do you think that convenience or will come at a cost of jobs though in pathology? Hard to predict um, because, you know, I guess if you said based on this amount of work that we have now and you had artificial intelligence to do the work, yes. I mean, clearly, if you can get rid of a large amount of work by doing it with uh, a computer, yes. In my opinion, what's going to happen is science and medicine continue to evolve. So what's going to happen is the computer will perhaps allow you or free up time that you can then focus on more complicated material and the amount of more complicated investigations that occur is continually evolving and is probably expanding exponentially now uh, with the concept of identifying underlying changes in the uh, genetic code of, of tumors and trying to tailor your particular therapy to the underlying change. I think you know the computer's not gonna be able to do that. You're gonna have to help guide what goes on or interpret you know, these chemical stains, so. Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you for such insight. Sounds like, in a way, technology will more over augment your role. And, you know, you mentioned, yeah. Yeah. I like that word. Yeah. Yeah. Free up a bit of time. So, yeah. Okay. I think we're almost nearing the end. Then again, maybe artificial intelligence will just give us more time for coffee. Exactly. Maybe you'll be the next. Yeah. You'll be the next medical ethics lawyer coming, going back to your firm. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that every specialty has such a diverse pool of applicants that applies for it and that eventually succeeds in matching. But if you could generalize, what type of individual do you think would be best suited to this field of pathology? So as far as an aptitude for pathology is concerned, we do have a big background of individuals or a diverse background of individuals who have applied. Historically, um, before you were born, uh, they used to have something called a rotating internship year, mm -hmm. where after that you get a general license. And in fact, a large number of pathologists were people who had done the rotating internship year, practiced, you know, as a family physician for several years and determined that they wanted to come back. And they actually were excellent pathologists or are excellent pathologists because they have a really clear understanding of what is required by a clinician in order to guide therapy of their patients. So to me, I think, what are the attributes of a good pathologist? You have to be patient. I think if you're someone who is, you know, is, is someone who enjoys really, really acute activities, uh, it's probably very, it, it would probably be somewhat, uh, what's the correct word? I can't think of the right word right now, but I think you would find it difficult to be sitting at your microscope. I think you have to be someone who enjoys working up a problem um, and, but also not someone who is going to spend too much time on it because you just don't have the time to do it to, uh, 
to examine every single aspect of it. Um, I think you have to have someone who, ha or you have to be someone who can see visually, um, or that doesn't make sense, see visually, that doesn't make sense. Uh, <laughs> how else can you see? Uh, I think you have to be someone who has an aptitude for visual pattern recognition. I, and that's why we require all of our applicants to have done at least one rotation in pathology because it would be awful for them to match into pathology and realize that looking down a microscope, they really can't tell that there's different patterns. Um, so I think that's, you know, the applicants, someone who I would encourage to apply to pathology is someone who has a genuine interest in science and, you know, making diagnoses based on analysis of a visual pattern. Uh, who enjoys the opportunity to have more time and the ability to show cases, uh, and also someone who has or would appreciate the ability to have time to do things outside medicine so that they have a more flexible schedule and are able to kind of, uh, you know, adapt their schedule to suit what else is going on in their lives. As this interview draws to a close, I just wanted to end off with What's one thing that you're most proud of? I think one thing I'm most proud of is, as I've described, seeing the people I've he, uh, taught go on to their careers and succeed in their careers. I think that's very rewarding. It's, uh, in a way, I guess it's similar to being a parent and seeing that uh, your child has gone through their you know, adolescence, et cetera, and uh, gone on to become some, uh, you know, contribute to society. I think the same is very true in teaching students, whether they be medical students, residents, or Path 375 students. It's very rewarding to hear from them afterwards and say, yes, you know, uh, Dr. Nimmo, you may not remember me, but you taught me, and, you know, it was great, and now I'm doing this. Um, it was very funny. I was buying an engagement ring at St. Paul, uh, sorry, at St. Paul, at Burks, <laughs> and uh, I went into the, uh, uh, the jewelry store, and as I was paying for it, I brought, I, I pulled out my credit card and the person behind the counter says, are you Dr. Nemo? And I said, yes, why? They said, oh, my husband was in your Path 375 class and he really, really enjoyed it. And this is so, this would probably be an eight or nine. And so how on earth would she know or remember that he had said to her and that she still has my name? So it's very rewarding. You know, it's, uh, I'm very pleased to hear that, you know, I've been able to help people further their careers and uh, give back to society. Well, that's the end of our episode today. Thank you so much, Dr. Nemo, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Um, yeah. For those who are listening to this episode, you can find more episodes like this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other apps where podcasts are listed. Yeah, uh, Simplecast now. Simplecast as well, yes. Um, again, joining us virtually given COVID times, uh, we really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, on behalf of the entire Metamorphosis team, my name is Eric Jung. I'm Tina Liu. And uh, thank you for joining us. Hope you guys stay safe and have the uh, social distancing, everyone. See you next time.
This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 